Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Revelations 1000 Years. In the 1920s, there was a young woman named Rose from New York City. She lived a life consumed with pleasure. She seemed to exist to attend one party after another. But suddenly, at the age of 21, Rose was struck down by a very strange illness. In fact, it was a sleeping illness. It was known as encephalitis lethargica. And so uh, we see that after some time, Rose awoke and she was immobile, frozen in an awkward position on the bed. And the local doctor said that she was, it was just a catatonia which would go away in a week. But a week passed. <laughs> and then a month passed. And then months passed. And then years passed. And Rose remained fixed in some incomprehensible state. This is very strange. And eventually, Rose's body became rigid and was committed to an institution. And she laid in bed or sat in a wheelchair for 48 long years. And remarkably, in 1969, Dr. Oliver Sacks administered a newly developed drug drug called L-DOPA. And he administered that to Rose, and after administering that to her, she woke up from her long sleep. And during the following days, her eyes brightened and she felt bursts of energy. The physicians were amazed, and to them, this was a great awakening. Of course, she was awakened only to age and eventually die years down the, down the, the line. But we see that the scriptures describe another awakening. This time when we wake up, we will never sleep again. And this is perhaps the most hopeful thing in the Bible and what gives special meaning to our theme. If, I, if it's in the Bible, I what? Believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me, right? So if you were not here last night, you missed out on a very important topic dealing with the state of the dead. What happens when we die? And so this topic tonight ties into that as well as the topic for tomorrow night, which is dealing with hell fire. Okay, so we need to understand these topics in lieu of the state of the dead. And so I really encourage you to uh, um, you know, get a copy of the uh, last night's presentation so that you can understand all this. But um, if you don't really get it, I'm free to answer questions or you can ask someone at your table uh, to fill you in. But uh, this time, we are, we, uh, are going to go ahead and move forward with how this ties into last night's presentation. Uh, and we see that the time that we're living in 
is a time that is temporary. We know that we'll be living for eternity someday. And Jesus ins- describes this incredible event in these words. And we're gonna, before we get there, let's get to our first question for tonight. Which says, according to Jesus, how many resurrections are there? Okay, so we learned last night that when you die, you don't go, the Bible told us very clearly that you don't go straight to heaven or hell when you die. Right? You are in the grave awaiting the resurrection. Right? Was that very clear last night? And so we're just kind of piggybacking off of what we learned last night. So the question is, according to Jesus, how many resurrections are there? And we're going to go to page 1030. And it's going to be John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Page 1030, John 5, 28 and 29. And we're going to have... uh, Scott, who's on table number one, read this for us once we get there. But let's just give some time for people to look for it. I hear pages rustling, which is a nice sound. <laughs> that means we're, we're looking through the pages of God's Word. So page 1030, John 5, 28 and 29. According to Jesus, how many resurrections are there? And uh, we're going to go ahead and have Scott read this for us. Okay, so take a good look at that verse. John 5, 28 and 29. According to Jesus, this is red letters, right? Jesus himself is speaking here. Jesus, coming from his mouth, we can definitely believe what he says, yes? And so, according to Jesus, how many resurrections does this Bible passage describe? Two. Two, that's right. And what are they? Number one is the resurrection of? Life and the number two is the resurrection of damnation, right? So there's two resurrections that Jesus speaks of, okay? And the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly when they will take place, but it does tell us that there are two resurrections. The resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation, right? So there's two resurrections that Jesus speaks of. And so, question number two asks us, when does the resurrection of life occur? Okay? And so we see uh, the resurrection of life occurs uh, when Jesus comes. Right? We talked about that yesterday. Uh, When Jesus comes, men and women who have been sleeping in the tomb awake. And awake this time never to sleep again. And they awake this time to see the face of Christ. They awake to see the glory of God. And let's take a look and see whether or not the Bible says this very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, page 1137. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, page 1137. And we're going to go to table 3. And we're going to read this and follow along together. Okay, so... 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, 1137. When does the resurrection of life occur? And we're going to see very clearly that the Bible confirms that it's taking place at which event? We're going to read this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ 
Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, so let's pause right there. So we see very clearly that those who are part of the resurrection of life is going to be resurrected at which event? When Jesus comes a second time. That's right. When Jesus comes, he's going to resurrect the dead and Christ shall rise first. This is the first resurrection. Okay? The first resurrection are those who died in their faith in Jesus. When Jesus comes, they are now resurrected to life to meet the Lord in the air. So, friends, when you and I are to die before Jesus should come, right? We close our eyes. We experience the sleep of death in Christ. And the next thing that we know is the coming of Jesus. The next conscious thought when our eyes are open is that Jesus is coming. Death is no more to be feared. And it's nothing more than a good sound sleep. And our lives are hid with, with God and Jesus marks that grave. And the Bible continues with this word. It says, then we which are alive and remain, these are those who are righteous and alive when Jesus comes, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So this is a glorious resurrection. We're going to see our loved ones resurrected if Jesus should come in our day. And we too will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And it says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Oh, wow. When Jesus comes, there are only two classes the saved and the lost. Those in the first resurrection and those destroyed those in the first resurrection and those destroyed by the brightness of his, brightness of his coming. You see, there's no second chance when Jesus comes. That's why the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Right? So the Bible tells us there's a what resurrection? First resurrection. So there must also, that implies there must be what else? A second resurrection. That's right. And so we see that we want to be part of the first resurrection, brothers and sisters. <laughs> we want to be part of the first resurrection. Not the second resurrection, because that's the resurrection of damnation. We don't want to be, we don't want to be a part of that. And, and just think of what that first resurrection will be like. A little child which died at an age of four or five, is resurrected from her grassy tomb. Think of the incredible joy her mom will have when she holds her in her arms again. Fathers and mothers with their saved children will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And have you ever lost anyone, a loved one, through death? I think we all have. The resurrection of the righteous believers will be a joyous reunion. And I cannot wait for that day when Jesus comes. Question number three. How many groups are there when Jesus returns? Okay? So we see, I'm just going to tell you, and then we're going to get the Bible confirmation. Is that all right? So we see that there are going to be two groups when Jesus returns. Right? There will be, group number one is the saved. Okay? Who's group number one? The saved. Right? And so the, the first group is resurrected to life, to be with Jesus forever. And the living, righteous believers are then changed and they ascend through the sky with glorious, immortal bodies, the Bible tells us, never subject to disease or death. And there's another group that the Bible mentions as well. And Revelation describes an event that is filled with sadness, not joy, for this group. We see that this group is the lost. Which group is this? The lost. It describes a group who is not joyously awaiting the return of their Lord. 
They're not happily awaiting the resurrection of their loved ones. When they see Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of glory, notice their reaction. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. It says, And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so we see the first class will look up and say, this is our God, we have been waiting for him. And they're excited for the coming of Jesus. But there's the second class. The second class, they look up with hearts filled with fear, They feel guilty. Guilt makes you want to run. And that's exactly what they do. They run to the mountains. They cry for the rocks to fall on them. What a shame. What a tragedy. This Christ who comes, who wants to save them, cannot save those who turn their backs on Him. This Christ who they run from wants to take them to a new world where there is no sickness or sorrow or death. But they run from Him. They turn their backs on Him. They have never crowned Him as King of Kings or Lord of Lords. And so now they do not in any way accept Him as the King of the universe when He comes. And so the question that we must ponder, question number four, how can we be part of the first group? That's a very important question. And, you know, it's about making Jesus king of our life. Now, what does it mean to accept Jesus as king? It means to invite him to rule on the throne of your heart. You see, friends, many times people are very satisfied with having Jesus as their savior. Yes, Lord, save me! But they have no interest in making Jesus their Lord, their king. They don't say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Have your will be done in my life. Is my life living in accordance to what you see fit, not what I see fit? Right? And so, not running your own life, but you're asking the Lord to sit on the throne of your heart and let Him rule. And Jesus invites you tonight to make Him your Lord, your Savior, and your King. No one needs to be unprepared when Jesus comes. We can choose to let Him be our Savior, to let His love fill our hearts. And He comes again to redeem us. He comes again to take us up from this earth. And that's why, as we look around and see the things taking place around us, the terrible things taking place, we do not need to be troubled. We see that the second coming is the great hope for all believers. It takes away doubt and fear regarding the future. And Jesus said it, very well here in John chapter 14, 1 through 3. Let's take a look there. Page 1042 in your Bibles. John 14, 1 through 3. I believe we're on table number 4. Uh, and we just need someone there read, to read this for us. John 14, 1 through 3, page 1042. Okay, what promise does Jesus give us? What great hope does he give to his believers in preparation for that great event? John 14, 1 through 3, page 1042. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In 
my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Okay, so very clearly, Jesus is making this promise. His first coming, he came as a child, born of a virgin, not, and, and as a and as a helpless babe in a manger. But this time, when he comes a second time, it will not be to die on the cross, but to reign on a throne. And Christ is coming again in the clouds of heaven. He's coming as a conquering general. And all the world's wrongs and evils are finally and completely put to an end. And we lead, that leads us to question number five. What happens when Christ comes the second time? Okay, so just giving you a panorama of what takes place, and we're going to take a look at some Bible verses to confirm this. We see that when Jesus comes, several events take place. We learn, number one, that the believers are resurrected during this time. We see that also the believers, both those who were dead and were resurrected, and those who are alive when Jesus comes, will receive immortality. And then we see that the wicked who are living at that time when Jesus comes, they are consumed by the brightness of Christ's coming. They cannot stand to be in His presence, and they are consumed by the brightness of His coming. And we see that the wicked who are dead up to that point remain in their graves. They don't resurrect this time. And we see that the believers then all ascend to heaven with Christ. This is all the events that take place when Jesus comes the second time. So, question number six says, what happens after Christ comes? Okay, what happens next? Does the Bible tell us what happens next after the, the second coming? And the book of Revelation provides some answers. And so let's take a look at Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to find a description of Christ coming as King of kings and Lord of lords, a returning victor conquering all the forces of evil. And in Revelation chapter, oh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. We're going to go to uh, page 1188, 1188. Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2. And the question is, what happens to Satan? We see that the, the believers are taken up to heaven. They have immortal bodies. The wicked who are alive are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. The wicked who are dead up to that point are still in their graves. But what happens to Satan? And Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2 tells us what happens. And let's take a look at table number 5. If we could have someone read that for us, please. Revelation 20, 1 and 2. Okay, do we have someone ready to read Revelation 21 and 2? Oh, okay, so what happens to the devil based on this text? He is bound with a chain. Right? And how long is he bound for? A thousand years. And, you know, the word uh, that we use sometimes to, to talk about the thousand years is the millennium. 
And the word millennium is not found in the Bible. You're not going to find it anywhere. Uh, but it comes from two Latin words. Milli, which means thousand, and annum, meaning years. So when you put millennium, it's just meaning a thousand years. Right? So the Bible doesn't say millennium, but the concept of a thousand years is there all throughout the book of Revelation. And it says that the Bible, well, the Bible says that Satan is cast into where? The bottomless pit for a thousand years, right? So what is this bottomless pit that Satan is cast into? What is the bottomless pit? Um, And we're going to take a look, um, and this question kind of gives us a hint. Question number seven says, what is the condition of the earth during this time? All the wicked are destroyed, and they're all dead. All the righteous are up in heaven. And so what is going to be the state of the earth during this time? as this thousand-year period begins. And we see that uh, the bottomless pit, um, the, you know, some people kind of wonder what the bottomless pit is. They think that it's some, some subterranean cavern within the earth that Satan is cast into. That's what they think it means. But if you actually look at the word, the meaning of bottomless pit in the original Greek, it actually is the word abusos. And that word abusos is where we get the English word abyss, right? So Satan is cast into the bottomless pit or he is cast in the abyss, right? And so how is this word abusos or abyss used in the Bible? Well, we have to go back to the book of Genesis to see the first mention of this word. And how it's used. If we go to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, which is page 1 in your Bibles, very easy to find. And we're going to have someone read this for us. Page 1, Genesis 1 verse 2. Table number 6. Can someone read Genesis 1 verse 2? I'm sorry. Okay, so this is taking place before the earth was formed or created, right? And what is the state of the earth during this time, before creation? It says the earth was without form and void, which is the exact same word that they use for abusos, right? So the word abusos is meaning without form without and void. And we see that the bottomless pit... In Revelation chapter 20, is not some deep subterranean cavern within the earth, but we see that when Christ comes the second time, the righteous dead are resurrected, the righteous living are caught up to meet with the Lord in the air, and when Jesus comes the second time, every mountain and every island is moved out of its place, the Bible tells us. The wicked living are destroyed by the brightness of His coming. They're consumed with the glory of Christ's return. Unbelievers are destroyed. The dead unbelievers remain in their grave. And so when Christ comes the second time, the earth is left desolate. It's left in ruins. And it is uninhabited. It is like an abyss. It was like before God spoke the earth into existence. It was without form and void. So the bottomless pit is the abyss, a desolate, destroyed planet earth. And no human being is on this earth during this time. 
And so question number eight says, what are these chains that bind Satan for a thousand years? Does God come down and put handcuffs on Satan and say, all right, Satan, solitary confinement for you? What kind of chains are these? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly. Let's take a look at 2 Peter 2, verse 4. What are these chains that bind Satan? Are they literal chains, or is it just metaphorical or a symbol of something else? Let's take a look at 2 Peter 2, verse 4, table number 7. We'll read that for us, page 1166. Page 1166, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Okay, what are these chains that bind Satan? Page 1166, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. And if we could have someone read that for us, please. Uh, 2, verse 4. Okay, so we see that God delivered them into chains of what? Darkness to be reserved for judgment, right? So during the thousand years, get this, Satan is bound or chained on earth according to Scripture with chains of darkness. You see, friends, during the thousand years... Satan is wandering around on the desolate planet Earth with no one to tempt. Because all the wicked are destroyed. All the righteous are in heaven. And Satan is going to be walking up and down the face of this Earth. And he's not going to find a single person alive. Not a single person that he can manipulate or deceive or to tempt. And he is chained along with his evil angels in this horrible darkness of his own evil deeds. A chain of circumstances is which binds him. But during the thousand years, why doesn't Jesus come and make the earth new? Why does he leave the earth desolate for a thousand years? And friends, what we need to understand is that everything that God does is to ensure the security of the universe for eternity. It is to forever do away with the sin problem. And God is handling the sin problem in a way that is not some quick fix solution. God desires that sin shall never raise its ugly head up ever again. And in order for this to occur, two things must happen. Number one, the entire universe, angels and human beings on earth must know without a doubt that God is a God of incredible love. That God is worthy to be trusted. That's why Jesus came to show that God so loved the world that He, that this God of incredible love, that, that He has gave His only Son so that we could trust Him. And so we see that no sin is so dark that God's love cannot blot it out. And I'm thankful to God for that. Amen. He'll go to any length to save us. He'll pull you out of any pit. And this great controversy that started with Satan, this is night number three that we talked about, Satan made that attack against the character of God, saying that God is a tyrant, God is a dictator, God cannot be trusted, and now here is Satan. Seeing the end of his ways against God's ways. Seeing what is the final outcome 
of the government that he thought would be better than God's government. And here it is in ruins. The earth, a desolate planet earth. This is what his kingdom would lead to. And this great controversy between good and evil can never be settled until the whole universe sees how bad sin really is. And when it comes to this point, that's when everyone knows what sin leads to. And Satan's claims are bankrupt. He has nothing to say for himself. Because his idea of a reformed government is a failed government. Because of his rebellion against God. We see that the wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. And Satan, he's wandering around this dark, broken earth, echoing and re-echoing the, throughout the universe the words, the wages of sin is death. And as the entire heavenly universe looks at earth, they will see this is what it is like. This is what life is like without God. Question number nine. Is there anyone alive on earth during the millennium? Satan and his angels are bound through a chain of circumstances on a desolate earth. The Bible tells us in more detail what is this earth described to be during this time. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 through 27, page 730, page 730, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 27. Is there anyone alive on earth during the millennium? Let's take a look here in Jeremiah 4, 23 through 27, page 730. We're at table number 8. And my brother Tin is here. Thank you, Tin, for coming. All right. So we're going to look at page 730, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 27. If we could have someone from table number 8 read that for us, please. And the rest of us will follow along. Okay. Keep. I beheld that indeed there was no man, and all the birds of heaven had fled. I beheld that indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For okay. thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Mm-hmm. Very good. So we see that very clearly. What is the state of the earth? It's desolate. It's empty. There's no man there. And also, when you actually read this passage, it may seem like, oh, it's talking about creation because the earth is void and empty. But if you actually see details on this passage, that's not so. We, t- we see that there are cities in ruins. Right? There's no people there. It's completely empty. Right? It's a desolate planet. And let's take a look at uh, a few chapters down, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 33. Um, as we look at page 756, page 756, Jeremiah 25, 33. And we are now on table number 9. And uh, my wife will read that for us. Okay. Wow, so what 
Can you picture this? It's all the people that had died when Jesus came, all the wicked, they died at the brightness of His coming. He says that all their bodies will be laid out upon the surface of the earth. And it says that their bodies will not be buried. Why? Because there's nobody to bury them. They all died. There's nobody on earth now. They all died, and they're not going to be gathered or buried. They start to become refuse on the ground. Over the, they go through the process of decay and decomposition during this time, and they become no more during this thousand years. Right? Very graphic picture, but the Bible tells us this is exactly what's going to happen after the thousand years. I mean, during the thousand years. Uh, at the beginning of the thousand years, I should say. And so we see, friends, that based on Satan's claim for a better world, and that if he was in charge, it will be better than what God will do, we see that that's not true. We see God's government is a government based on love, and love brings life. Selfishness, which is what Satan was compelled and motivated by, brings death. And that's always a principle that is true today. If we always live selfishly, it will bring death. But if we, bring, if we live by love, and the love of God is in us, it brings life. And so, question number 10. What will the righteous be doing during the, ten, during the thousand years? And we see Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Let's just say that we go to heaven, and what is it going to be like while we're there? Page 1188. Revelation 20, verse 6, page 1188. What will the righteous be doing during the thousand years? Everything he can to save that person. 
So say for example you go to heaven and you're so happy to be there. But then you notice after you the, the realization sets in that you're there, you're looking around to find your best friend. You're looking around to find your relative. You're looking around to find your church member that you went to church with. And you find out that they're not there. And you wonder, wait a minute. I thought for sure they would be here. Why are they not here, Lord? There's going to be questions. A lot of questions. Why didn't my brother make it? A lot of questions. And so what this millennium period is there for is for our benefit. God brings out the books of record of every person's life. And when you ask, why is my brother there, Lord? I'll bring out the book of your brother's record and the book will be opened. And you can search every aspect of your brother's life to see all the ways that God tried to reach him, all the ways that the Holy Spirit prompted him, all the things that God did to, to draw him back on the path of the straight and narrow path, but, we, but he deviated, he continued to reject it. Or it could be a pastor from a church, that pastor, he seems so godly, but he's not here, why? And you'll see that as the book is open of his life, you'll say, oh, he had a secret sin in his life that he cherished. He didn't give it up to God. And, and because of that, that's why he's lost. All these details will be revealed to us in a thousand years. And they will realize as they study those books that God has done everything he can to save that person. But anyone who is lost is only lost because of their own choices. The entire universe will have their questions answered, and once and for all, it'll be settled that, that God is fair, God is just, God has done everything He possibly could to save the human race. And there'll be no devil's advocate in heaven saying, is, isn't God a little too hard on such and such? Isn't God a little too hard on her? Isn't God a little too hard on the devil? None of those questions will ever come again. Because every question will be answered during this time. Every question about His justice and love will be fully answered. And this, the amazing thing is this. This is an all-loving, all-wise, just God who allows us. He doesn't have to do this. But he allows us to participate in this judgment. And, and this judgment is not to determine who's guilty and who is, who's innocent. Oh, he's guilty, he's innocent. You're not determining that. That's already been determined. All we're doing in this judgment process, how we're participating in this judgment process, is to see whether or not God did indeed judge faithfully, justly, and fairly. And we will know that oh, God is just and true and fair are all His ways. I can be confident that God did everything He can to save such and such. But they knowingly rejected Him anyway. That's why they're lost. And so the Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? What kind of angels will we be judging? The good angels? No, the evil ones. 
Satan and his angels. We will be judging them as well. We'll be seeing whether or not God's judgment against them is fair or not. And that is how we participate in this judgment. When heaven's books are open, we'll fully understand why certain things happen to us as well. Some things happen in our lives and we wonder, Lord, why did you have that freak accident happen and now I'm, a, I'm paralyzed? Right? All these freak accidents that take place and say, Lord, where were you during this time? All the questions, all the what-ifs will be answered during this time. We'll understand the hard times and the good times, and we'll see how everything fits into God's wonderful plan of redemption. We'll review what happens during this thousand-year period known as millennium, and it'll all become clear to us during this time. The events during the millennium, what's taking place during the thousand years, the righteous are in heaven. The wicked remain dead. Satan and his angels are bound on earth, and the earth remains desolate. Question number 11. What events happen after millennium? After the millennium. So we, we looked at what happens before the millennium, at the time that Jesus comes. What happens during the millennium? Now what happens after the millennium? And we see that the wicked will be resurrected. This is the second resurrection. Right? So the millennium, the good way to remember this is like the first resurrection and the second resurrection are like two flagpoles. Right? This is the first resurrection where Christ comes. This is the second resurrection where Christ comes again. Right? Then in the middle, there's a banner that says 1,000 years. Right? So Jesus comes at this time. He takes up all his people. They spend 1,000 years in heaven in the process of judgment. Jesus returns the third time to earth, the desolate planet earth. And when he returns this time, all the wicked are resurrected. Whereas the first one, who was resurrected? All the righteous was resurrected. Are you following? Yes. So the wicked are resurrected after the, after the millennium. And we see this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. Let's take a look. Page 1188. Revelation 20, verse 5. And we see it says that the rest of the dead did not live again until when? The thousand years were finished. Right? So we see that the rest of the dead, that is referring to the wicked dead, right? They are not resurrected until the thousand years were finished. At the end of the thousand years, we have, at the, at the beginning of the thousand years, we have a resurrection of life for the believers, and we have a resurrection of damnation for the wicked at the end of the thousand years. And John describes this group of lost human beings with this remarkable phrase. Can you imagine? All the wicked people all that has ever lived on planet Earth are now being resurrected at this time. Can you imagine? I would imagine there's a lot more wicked people than good people. And they far outnumber us, I would imagine, if we were counted among those uh, God's people. 
But Revelation 28 says that there are so many people that are being resurrected at this time. It says that the number is as the sand of the sea. How can you count every, every grain of sand on the beach? Is that possible? No way. But the Bible describes all the wicked being raised up at this time is like the number of the sand of the sea. And the drama of the ages continues to unfold toward this climax. The battle between good and evil comes to a head. And this is the battle that is going to take place where Satan and all the wicked from all the ages form a gigantic army to attack the holy city which descends from heaven at the end of the 1,000 years. And listen to this in Revelation 20, verse 7 and 8. Page 1188. Look at what happens when this takes place. What does Satan do? We see, let's take a look. Table number 12. Can someone read that for us? Revelation 20, 7 and 8. Page 1188. Okay, so we see that Satan, he is now what? He is released from his presence. What released him from his presence? Now, that's right, now he, the circumstances have changed. Now there's people to tempt. There's people to deceive. There's people that he can work with. And what does he do? He gathers all of them to himself. Hey, everyone! Gather to me. You know, we can take this city that came down from heaven. There's more of us out here than there and there, so we can take it. And so he musters up all the forces. He rallies them up, and he, he works them up into frenzy so that they can attack the city. And that holy city that John saw, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, preparing as a bride to work for her husband. And we see that holy city comes out of the sky. It comes down to this earth. And it lands upon the surface of this earth and the climax of all ages. And Satan and the resurrected wicked rush that city. They want to overthrow God. They want to take control of the universe. And every one of us will either be outside the walls of that city or inside the walls of that city with Christ. And so we see that Jesus will either be Lord of all or not Lord at all. We see that Revelation reveals that the headquarters of the entire universe will be shifted from heaven to earth. Can you imagine? God brings the headquarters of heaven and transplants it to this earth so that earth will now be the new capital of the universe. It's an amazing thing that God can take this planet in rebellion and restore it to its Edenic splendor again. And we see Revelation 21, verse 3. So I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And that glorious holy city descends from heaven. Satan marshals the legions of the lost, and now they attack the city, believing that they can take control of the universe. And we see... Revelation 20, verse 9, what happens? Table number 1. 
What did Jesus mean when he said that he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth in 2 Peter 3? What did Jesus mean when he said that the meek shall inherit the earth? When does that happen? And we see Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, page 1189. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And also there was no more sea. Right. So we see that the, this, takes, this takes place after the fire has done its cleansing work. And God creates a glorious, perfect, new earth where sin is no more. We see the events at the end of the millennium are this, in summary. We see that Christ and the saints in the city descend. The wicked dead are all raised. Satan is loosed. And we see that the last judgment transpires. Satan and sinners are destroyed. The earth is cleansed and renewed. And we see all that taking place at the end. And so, the question tonight is, friends, would you like to live in this new heaven and new earth? Amen. It's only for those who are saved. It's only for those who, who, who accept Jesus' invitation for the gift of salvation that he has provided for them. Would you like to live in a world where there's no sickness, no suffering, no heartache, no death? A land where worry and want are over. A land where all fear and anxiety are over. A land where there's no prisons, no hospitals, no soup kitchens, no war, no diseases, no poverty, no mental institutions. A land where love and peace and righteousness and goodness reign. Forever. Amen. Second Peter chapter three verse thirteen says, "Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells." Amen. We'll be living in an era of eternal righteousness forever. Sin never to rear its ugly head ever again. There's nothing more than God that, that God wants for us tonight than for us to live with Him for eternity in this new heavens and a new earth throughout eternity. He wants that so bad. Do you? You could live in that land. God gives you that invitation tonight. Is there anything in your life that would prevent you from being there with Him? Are you holding on to something in your heart that you know to be wrong, but you keep doing it anyway? Is there some weight of guilt that keeps you from a full surrender to Him? Is there some habit or some temptation that binds you? Friends, we can be free tonight. One day Jesus will reign on the throne of the universe. One day He will reign forever and ever. But until then, tonight, you can have him reign in the throne of your heart. Wouldn't that be a great place to start? Would you allow him to do that?
tonight. How many of you would like to say, Lord, I accept you as my Savior, but I have not allowed you to be my Lord. I have not surrendered my heart fully to you so that you can assume the rightful place in the throne room of my heart so that you can rule in my life. So my life will always go by, thus saith the Lord. Not based on what culture says, not based on what the world says, not based on what is majorly, majority uh, 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 rule uh, sort of concepts of life, but allowing Jesus to be our King and our Lord. And maybe there are some of you here tonight that have never given your life over before to Jesus, and you want to do it tonight. And maybe there's something else that's been on the throne of your own heart. And you know it's true, and it's time for us to give that over to God. And allow Him to take that throne of your heart. Or maybe there's some of us here tonight that we once knew God, we drifted away from Him. And tonight you want to return. If that is your desire tonight, and say, Lord, that is me. And I want to live, yield myself completely to, completely to you and give my life in total surrender to you. Are you willing to make that decision tonight? And if so, would you raise your hand this evening and say, Lord, please take your place in the throne of my heart. Praise God. I'd like to pray for you tonight. We pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time of study that has revealed to us the closing chapter of Earth's history. How it will all end has been revealed to us tonight. And Lord, until that day that you become the king of the universe, we want you to be king of our lives. You've seen the hands raised today. And Lord, I pray that you'll please see that as permission for you to take your rightful place on our throne of our heart tonight. Because we know that by doing so, we have yielded completely to you. And we know that the power of Christ will work in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. And so Lord, may we experience that love as we abide in you and you in us. And this is what we want, and we thank you that you will do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.